0: Hello, and welcome to the Oscar Went 2 the podcast that looks back at a year in film and sees what films endured, what films didn't, and attempts to figure out why. Please, give it up for your Masters of Ceremony, Max Salim and Nick Mastad. You ready to go, pal? Let's do it. All right. Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of The Oscar Went To. I am Nick Mestad. And I am Max Salim. What are we trying to do here? We're attempting to look back to a past year in film and retroactively crown a best picture for that given year. We're not looking for the best movie or the most important film. We're attempting to find the film that has endured over time and squarely placed itself in the zeitgeist of a given year. Along the way, we hope to rediscover some old movies, discover hidden gems, all the while trying to glean something about time passing, culture evolving, or whatever.
1: I couldn't have said it any better myself, honestly.
0: Hmm. I felt like I was channeling you. You you nailed it. Thank you. Um, As I said, today we are talking about uh, 2006, the year in film that it was. Just a recap. Well, first of all, Max, how are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited for today. been prepping, and uh, I got some thoughts. Got some thoughts prepared. I can't wait to hear them. Likewise. Um, Okay, so for 2006 in film, just to kind of set the scene here, the Best Picture nominees from the year of 2006 were Babel, The Departed, Letters to Iwo Jima, The Queen, and Little Miss Sunshine. The winner of Cannes that year was The Wind That Shakes the Barley, and the winner of The Golden Lion in Venice was Still Life from Hong Kong. Uh, in terms of IMDb, the highest-rated film with the most votes is The Lives of Others at 8.4. And the highest letterboxed ratings at 4.2 is a tie between The Departed and Children of Men. A lot of different movies here just in this uh, general list here, Max. Um, oh, why, don't, why don't we go
1: through the um, the highest box office, you know? yes. yes. Because... I, Something is occurring to me the more of these episodes we record. And I thought when we stumbled across 2007, we were like, oh, wow, how strange that mm-hmm. there aren't really any good movies in the top box office. Mm-hmm. But pretty much from the mid 2000s onwards, the, the films that are heavily rewarded or like critically acclaimed, they don't really make an appearance in, in the highest grossing films. So yeah, what
0: do you think that tells us about the American people? I think well, I mean I'm looking at worldwide gross here.
1: Oh, so, yeah, I guess I guess
0: I am too. So this is what does that I mean, tell us about everybody? Everybody. I mean, I think it to me what it says is that how difficult it is to make a movie that checks the boxes of what makes a movie critically acclaimed and what checks the boxes of what appeals to general mass audiences. Well, Something else that I've noticed is that
1: the more of these, because I guess when we when we started, I wasn't particularly well acquainted with the highest grossing films from a given year. right? Uh, but now that we get into it, it's shocking how many of these films are what you would consider kids' movies from year to year. Those tend to be the ones that, that, that bring in the biggest box office. So I guess, you know, I don't have a kid, but I guess there's a, a pretty big demand amongst parents to have movies they can drag their kids to.
0: Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I think like our bubble that we live in is generally childless. There's not a lot of children. My friends don't have children. I don't have a lot of friends with children yet and I myself don't have children, but it makes sense to be a parent. And it makes sense that the, the movies that have made the most money are the movies that appeal to the most, the biggest audiences. I mean, if you're including children, if a children can see a movie, that's a whole Other audience that is of ticket buyers of money to make, so that makes complete sense, just from like a money standpoint. Where it's like, especially like families too, you know. I I imagine that as a parent, movies and TV are a break from like (laughs) the the chaos that is parenting. So it's like, yeah, what's the newest movie that my kids will love and that I can find at the very least agreeable. All right, fly through them. All right, so the top. Grossing movies of 2006 worldwide are, counting down from 10, at 10, Happy Feet, at number nine, Superman Returns, number eight, Mission Impossible 3, seven, X-Men The Last Stand, number six, Cars, five, Night at the Museum, four, Casino Royale, three, Ice Age The Meltdown, two, The Da Vinci Code, and at number one, Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest. I have a, uh, immediately I'm very surprised that Ice Age, The Meltdown is the, we have three animated movies, if my count is correct, uh, on this list, and Ice Age, The Meltdown is the highest grossing animated film. That really blows my mind.
1: I've never seen any of these animated films. I I haven't really, you know, that's what's funny about looking at this list right now. I've seen Casino Royale. Mm
0: -hmm. I think I've
1: seen The Da Vinci Code, but Mm -hmm. Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, X Men: The Last Stand, mm-hmm. and Mission Impossible Three. Like mm-hmm. maybe I've seen these. They're also indistinct and faceless to me, though <laughs> these, se- these sequels.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, Pirate, it, the Pirates of the B- Caribbean movie could easily be called Pirates of the Caribbean Indistinct Pirates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great call. I think I've seen I've seen Superman Returns, Mission Impossible Three, X Men, Cars, Casino Royale. And I have seen Dead Man's Chest. That's the last parts movie that I saw. It feels a lot like noise here. I did really like Mission Impossible 3, and I still like that movie. Uh, cars, uh, we'll get into a little later. But other than that, and Casino Royale has its merits, for sure, as a Bond film. It's definitely a super solid Bond movie. Yeah, that is the but first Daniel Craig one, correct? It is, yeah. And and, and gritty, and I thought they did. I, I think it's a very solid Bond entry. I'm
1: I'm working with some young filmmakers right now some young Mm -hmm. animators who during the quarantine went and watched every bond movie and with their friends and then made a graph of, of ranking a cumulative graph of all of their votes for each bond movie and each bond girl. And then the average between the, those two. And I was very surprised they're young, you know, they're in their early twenties, but Casino Royale was their number one bond film for both movie
0: and girl that's really interesting just because from a movie standpoint it is very solid although skyfall to me is i know the, yeah is, we don't is, even is the need apex
1: to... yeah skyfall <laughs> is absolutely the apex i haven't watched every bond film and i'm sure if you're older you have a different connection to the the older of course sean Connery of course, ones of but course. as far as pierce brosnan daniel craig skyfall is king for me too
0: yeah Although I will say uh, Bond girl wise, I might be on that same page with A- Ava Green is, is I, I think my top uh, of all Bond girls. I think that um, she tops my list.
1: Well, I think my Bond girl is yet to come and that is um, Ana de Armas who will be the Bond girl in the upcoming Bond film. So
0: I'll, I'll leave the jury out. <laughs> you, you, you're the one who told me that she's in the new Bond movie and kind of, were the one who, who kind of familiarized me with, her um okay what significant thing
1: happened in 2006 where were you in 2006
0: 2006 was end of my freshman beginning of my sophomore year of college yeah I mean it was funny like looking at the list of these movies and like rewatching or watching them for these things for the first time because I just remember yeah I just remember distinctly that it was that those college years I was a very impressionable age at this time I was kind of I think seriously watching films for the first time just like as a adult and and yeah. How yeah, I was going
1: to say this is like
0: this is sort of the
1: year when I really ramp up my film watching and really detach my film watching from the taste of my parents as well because Ooh. I'm seeing like a lot of stuff on by myself and it's also I want to say it's the dawn of my Netflix subscription back when you would actually yes, get dude. DVDs in the mail. Really really good call. That original Netflix thing was sort of was sort of crazy. Um, getting uh, DVDs in the mail and it, it, like your whole watching flow was different because you either had like the one DVD at a time or the three or the five, but regardless you needed to get through these movies. And I, I kind of like that more because even though you had an entire library at your fingers, you only had three DVDs in front of you. And and it saved me a lot of the uh, decision paralysis I feel nowadays when I go onto a streaming service and try to figure out what to watch that night.
0: That's a great call. I mean, it was ser- It was seriously like an, a book library. Like the benefits of renting a book from the library are the, oh yeah, I have like more of an incentive to finish this and read this quicker because it's due back at this time. That's so true about the Netflix subscription, it like mail-in subscription where it was it was timed and therefore, and yeah, you didn't have a million things to choose from. You had high fidelity on DVD. And if you don't watch high fidelity on DVD, you're you're not not going to get high fidelity
1: (laughs) and you're not going to get, you know, whatever it is next on your, on your watch list. Yes.
0: Yes. I also remember the like, especially when you set up an account back in those days, they would just give you pages and pages to scroll through of different movies and you could just hit thumbs up or thumbs down. And that's how they would kind of aggregate like what they recommended to you. And I remember driving immense satisfaction of endlessly scrolling through that list and and clicking like or dislike for movies that I'd seen because it just made me aware or at least made me feel like I'd seen so many movies and that I had taste and it made me aware of like movies. Did you ever like embarrassingly like give thumbs ups or did you like almost rate them as if
1: uh, the algorithm was judging you?
0: Oh, always the algorithm judging me. And now that we're talking about it, I think it was stars. Like it was a, it was a, like a five star system. Okay. If I remember correctly, but I, but I remember you could always go back and adjust them, which I would do frequently and be like actually you know what eternal sunshine is five stars not four well
1: i remember having a similar conundrum with my itunes because i i remember the <laughs> itunes would like say what songs you played the most and if i <laughs> found a song that i was listening to a lot embarrassing i yeah. wouldn't be i would be like this doesn't deserve to be so high up this list and so i'd always skip ahead like with five seconds left in the song to to avoid wow. giving it the cloud it truly deserved. Wow. A
0: loophole. <laughs> My God, that is insane. I completely understand that instinct. And yet yeah, just hearing that is just like, <laughs> damn man, the way we, the way we. Uh... And
1: then one other thing I want to say about Netflix is that I was listening mm-hmm. to a podcast about, I think it was called Business Wars. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't be advertising competing podcasts on our podcast. We are bar. not advertising <laughs> for Business Wars. Apparently in the dawn of Netflix, Netflix went to Blockbuster and made a proposition that we will be financially liable for our business. Uh, We will run our business, we will pay for all the DVDs, we'll pay for all the shipping, and we will give you 49% of our business just to call the website blockbuster.com. Oh my God. And Blockbuster, I'm paraphrasing here, said, go fuck yourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Oops.
0: Oh my god. All right, let's uh, let's let, let's get into the nitty gritty here. Just reading through the Oscar list, I, we're just like, "Oh man, haven't thought about that movie in a long time." And Dreamgirls and Blood Diamond for me really stood out as as kind of the top top movies that were like all over the place at the time and then I just haven't heard or thought about in a long time.
1: So, I think this nicely transitions us yeah. into a segment on this podcast that we like to call Why Was This Considered Good? My, my nominee for why was this considered good is mm-hmm. the queen.
0: Have you seen this yeah, movie? I, I saw it for the first time. Uh, this
1: week. <laughs> I felt obligated to watch it because I'd never seen it. And so this yep. was also a blind spot for me. Yeah. And. What the fuck is this movie? This movie like so- is so <laughs> mediocre, and it, it it really was like lauded. I read that because after I saw it, I was like, "What am I? What am I misunderstanding about this?" And so yep. I went to read it about it. It received a four minute standing ovation at Venice. That's insane. That is insane. the The movie it's like at best is like a snapshot of an interesting time in the monarchy when it crosses over from stuffy, like, yeah, like uh, the monarchy. classic monarchy into the tabloids. I guess, yeah. Right. The conflict is like so irrelevant and the stakes couldn't be lower. And you're in going into act three, of the film and you're like, what, what is the conflict here? It's like the queen is debating if she should publicly mourn the death of her ex daughter in law. Right. Who gives a shit? What's the problem? And why is Tony Blair like lauded as like the greatest prime minister since Churchill?
0: Yes. To me. So, so to me, my answer to that and what I came up with is that here's a movie that takes place in 1997 and comes out is released nine years after the events that it's depicting. So it's very recent past, arguably so recent that it's it's made in a time that is arguably the the shortest one can wait wait to make a movie about a, an actual historical event. Arguably, okay, it's like it's like nine years. So it's like this is something that not only do people remember, but literally everyone's experienced fairly recently and and i think there was a this is just hypothesis but i imagine that people felt that they were just seeing this sort of angle on this event that they all know that just happened in a very comforting very very cathartic way of just like oh yes tony blair and the queen and and uh here's what you know it's like here's i'm a fly on the wall and when when all this was happening i remember where i was i was in that crowd that was upset with the monarchy for not recognizing this blah 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 it was just to me, I think it was just like kind of this like quick catharsis that at the time was re- deeply felt and was really made for the moment it came out and then just as just lost to time like it was just short sighted in, in it wasn't made to last I think it was like made to be kind of quickly satisfying and that's what it was and it also on top of it you have like Helen Mirren play, playing this character that everyone knows so it has that that quality of like here's a historical figure you know it's the classic Oscar bait is a cheap word it is a great performance I'm, I can't deny that but it it's just like it's stuffy and it's so
1: stuffy the brits say biopic by the way biopic <laughs> they also say saxophonist really yeah and aluminium yeah but we should save this for our other podcast which is funny ways brits pronounce american english we're actually coming or up english a longer words title. i suppose so
0: <laughs> no this is english
1: too all yeah. right <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, it also exposed me. I I realized that I don't know that much about the monarchy, um, right? And I found myself, it, you know, kind of getting a first exposure, besides just like a really vague peripheral uh, acknowledgement of the British monarchy. And I couldn't help throughout the whole movie, but be like, what the fuck? Who's the the taxpayers pay for this you know my americanism really came out and was like this is a bunch of bullshit
0: and then like the the the, before you get the title that shot of like her from her feet and then it pans up and it's her and then she like looks at the camera and says the queen i was like woof yeah Um, i i'm just strange this is
1: the first time in my life i'm really sad i can't do a good british accent so i could just do this entire segment in a British, a stuffy British accent.
0: Well, to, I mean, I, I mean, and just to, to kind of distance myself from you, my, my qualm is not with the Brits. I just want to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> it is with the film The Queen and only the film The Queen. <laughs> Anyways, we've spent way too much time talking about
1: th- this film, in my opinion. No,
0: I if we, if you had not brought it up, I was going to make a, like, I was going to to create a whole Legit segment on the show, because we we once I saw this movie, I was like, we can't not talk about this uh, on the on the episode.
1: Well, yeah, maybe we should start naming the segments after the films that epitomize them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So from from hence, henceforth, the segment where we talk about why was this film uh, so celebrated and it didn't last at all. It's going to be called what was the queen of this year yes yeah, so i i
1: could also argue we we could call it what was the juno of this year but
0: that's more you calling it that than me my friend juno is a, a absolute little little gem of a movie <laughs>
1: did you have any big blind spots for and six?
0: uh yes sort of a little slight addendum to that is that this is a movie that i had heard about like kind of an obscure sort of list like kind of a criterion collection movie that, I, that I, it, it, I had seen before, recognized the poster of, and had never watched. I haven't really heard it in conversation, but I did watch it. I had never seen it before, and I think it deserves to be in the conversation more. Um, is this movie called Old Joy. Did you watch this movie? I've heard it referenced. I did not watch it in preparation for this episode. Got you. So Old Joy is a movie, came out in 2006, absolute shoestring budget of like 30 grand. It's Kelly Reichert's debut, who um, she's really, she's become to be an auteur. Her most recent movie came out in 2019 was First Cow. She had Wendy and Lucy. She had Meek's Cutoff. Old Joy, it's like an hour and 16 minutes. It's barely feature length. And it's just about two old college friends who are now in their like early 30s. One's like kind of in the beginnings of married life. The other is living sort of the punk hand-to-mouth lifestyle and they just go on this like overnight camping trip the two of them and it is immensely understated so minimal so much is like unsaid and you just kind of it's just implied but it's implied it's unmistakable what's happening and particularly it just there's a line in the movie where the title is derived from that is like the line i've been mulling over in my head since then. So I, I highly recommend this movie. It's a quick watch. It's a quiet film. You kind of have to just, just, just watch it. Um, there's, there's really no action in it. It's very minimal, but I highly recommend it. It's it's hard to, hard to forget, hard to shake. All right. How about you, Max? Any, any, uh, any blind spots for you?
1: Yeah. I actually had never seen half Nelson, which I watched in preparation for this episode. Excellent. What'd you think? Are you going, do you have more to talk about half Nelson later?
0: Uh, n- no, I don't okay. actually. And, and, and in terms of hidden gems, I had half Nelson on my list. So I'm so happy you, you said this. What do you, what do you, uh, let's talk about it. It, it was definitely enjoyable.
1: I, it's not, it's not going to come up in my top five it, really good performances. It, it, it's like, it is, it is like the independent spirit darling, you know, if you had to like quantify sure that a lower budget simpler movie about you know humans and society and and emotions and it's really nice I don't have anything bad to say about
0: it but yeah when this movie came out Ryan Gosling became like my like actor idol at the after this because it was just like this like it was yeah it was just great
1: and you've dabbled in in substitute teaching at times in your life too so I have in in New York City and in crack addiction too just dabbled yes just just lightly dabbled so it um, it must you know it's strike closer to home for you yes um that was a joke mom <laughs> let's segue then into best films you've never heard of and i'll do the typical we 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 need to find a like, like the queen is going to be the why is this considered good? We need to find a, a better title for this section because I'll do our, our normal disclaimer, which is we're not challenging you that you haven't seen this film. At, and, and this category doesn't need to belong to just obscure films, mm-hmm. but it's sort of a, a, some space for really good films that aren't in our top five, mostly because they aren't as widely viewed as they would need to be to, to really mm-hmm. crack that, that section.
0: I do have a blind spot. My blind spot was The Lives of Others. It is a movie that I had never seen previously. You recommended it to me multiple times. It always stood out to me as for as big as Pan's Labyrinth was this year. It lost Best Foreign Film to The Lives of Others. I remember you said about that, you said yes, and that's... It's deserving of that. And so this is perfect it, because this is my best film you've
1: ever heard of. So we can uh, just kind of seamlessly <laughs> okay. merge these two yes. together. Um, and obviously, so did, a lot of people have heard of this film at one best, as you just said, one best foreign film as far as like, you know, the 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 cinephiles in my life. This is one that that I've spoken to about with, with several people. So... What, what did you okay. think upon your first viewing?
0: I thought it was tremendous, really tremendous. Really, it transcends, although it's a great film that's informative about a very real time and re- very real circumstance, it is a movie that transcends all of that. The tactile elements of it, the, the, the time, the place, although those are extremely important and informative in the movie, it transcends all of that and becomes something completely timeless and affecting and haunting and just it's it's just uh, just a wonderful film yeah it's um,
1: it's really it's it's really elegant it's a slow burn and mm-hmm. it is i don't you know i i do feel like there's probably a big chunk of people that have never seen this so i don't want to go too much into spoiler territory but i i do want to <sighs> say that the script is really nice it's weaved get together really nicely Perfectly. what i think is so interesting about it is that it sets up a protagonist and an antagonist but these two never mm-hmm. see each other throughout the whole film right. And then in the end, it somehow flips it all around where the antagonist has been your protagonist the whole time and you just didn't realize it. And he's sort of the hero and the, and the biggest sympathizer. And it's just... Oh my God. It's dude. really nice. It's a really well-wound, well-crafted well crafted film.
0: And again, I, I mean, part of me just wants to get unabashedly into spoiler territory, but I won't, I guess... But we had that. We've been having this kind of ongoing, now ongoing conversation for the past couple of weeks about greatest movie endings. The last lines in this movie, I gasped audibly. I, it's just a, it's a perfect ending. It is a really good ending. I, I goddamn, I, I agree with you on that. Just goddamn, it's poetry, man. It's poetry.
1: You know, I have friends that are from Germany, and and some friends that are either from, grew up in East Germany or their parents grew up in East Germany. And Mm. a lot of people are like, yeah, that's a nice film, but it's like really historically inaccurate. Like the Stasi wasn't that bad. But also like, I think it's sort of like a fact that like, if you tried to escape East Germany for West Germany, the Stasi would like kill you. So maybe they didn't use these techniques, but... Uh, yeah I think the Stasi was like kind of bad and I'll, I'll give this film a pass if it you know indulges certain sure. uh, parts of history a little
0: bit more than others dude the the also just on kind of a like cinematic just like story level see this movie if you haven't I cannot recommend it enough all right God damn dude I mean yeah I'm glad you saw it. it me too man I it was like the perfect you've been recommending it for a while and it was the perfect incentive to just finally sit down and watch it and just so glad I did yep highly highly recommended okay go see *Lives of Others if you haven't already Max do you have any other best films we've never heard of yes I have two um okay. and I'll be brief about both of them but have you ever seen Sweetland yes I have okay
1: so I'm gonna give this a um You know, it's a little nepotism here, I suppose, but I'm still going to give it a Mm -hmm. shout out. Sweetland is a 2006 film um, about three generations of farmers on a small Minnesota farm. And it is directed by my dad, who won Best First Feature at the Independent Spirit Awards that year. And I think I would say this, even if my dad hadn't directed it, uh, it's really like a beautiful little gem of a film, in my opinion. And it has aged well as a period piece. It's a love story. It's a simple film, but it's, it's really nicely done. And I'm going to give it a shout out on here, check out Sweetland if you've never seen it and maybe, uh, you know, my future, uh, self will get some licensing kickback if you, if you watch it on Netflix or something like that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. And I just want to, I want to back that up because it's a movie that I've only seen once and it has, it has really stuck with me, just like a beautiful minimalist gentle tender movie it, it like strikes a tone that I, I have a hard time thinking of another movie that strikes that tone and does it so well in a compelling way where it's like a, a few films would I describe as gentle and it's just this it's beautiful in that way and there are shots from that movie of the the last shot of that movie and there's some shots of the cornfield and uh, the fields that like have not left me since I saw that movie so I uh, absolutely second uh, seeing that that beautiful beautiful gem of a movie and
1: then I'm gonna just mention one other movie here. Have you ever seen the proposition? no okay never I don't think I've heard of it The proposition is a John it's directed by John Hillcott Hillcote Hillcott It's a western set in like a brutal brutal Australia during its colonization by the Brits mm-hmm. It's written and scored by Nick Cave. Ooh, love Nick cave it is it is it's a bit of a tough it's really violent. It's extremely violent film. but if you like the genre of westerns, this thing is like oozing with style Hell yeah. it, it's really it's really beautiful and it's like a, it's just enough of a twist on the western that we usually see set in the western United States but but put into a similar but very different point of time in Australia. So it's if, if you're a Western person and you've never heard of or seen this film, it's worth checking out. starring Guy Pierce, Danny Houston, amongst others,
0: love it. All right, I've I've never heard it. Looking at it now, it looks fantastic. I've just somehow never heard of this movie. Well, now it's time for the moment of truth: the uh, the top five list. Now, mine. I'm anticipating without a doubt some some backlash from you. I could be wrong, but I this. I it, it's just worth noting that the metric very clearly that I'm using this time. That I wasn't necessarily clear. I wasn't as crystal clear in, in in episodes past. Is what has endured. So
1: yeah, let's talk about this for a second because I, yeah, I do yeah. feel like I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and we've openly said that as we began this podcast and as we you know keep recording these episodes that we're sort of honing in on on the concept as we go. I, so I've been thinking about criteria a little bit, and I'm we don't mm-hmm. need to talk too much about it this, but I'm going to at this moment explain thus far the criteria, the metrics I've been using to arrive to this top five list, all right. Cool. I think that the first one is: is a film good? In my opinion, like maybe a film doesn't need to be great to be on this top five list, but it can't be bad. Right, You're-
0: right. I would argue that we're already in subjective territory. But
1: do you have like a clearly bad film that you feel is deserving uh, of of this of being on the the top five?
0: I have a couple movies that many people would consider objectively bad. Okay. That I that I that I disagree with. But 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 if we're going by metrics that like the Oscars use, it could be argued that they're not good. But they I would say the fact that they've endured again, it's like it's like they've endured. And what's the definition of good? I mean, it's subjective.
1: Okay, fair enough. Um, But I wouldn't I I wouldn't nominate a film that I think is bad. I guess is what I'm saying. It doesn't need to be widely okay. considered to be good necessarily.
0: I'm really not trying to be antagonistic here, but I will say be, because what, what what's, what's kind of crystallized for me this episode and coming up with this top five is by going by what's endured. And yes, it's a comb- combination of like how good it is, but it's like a movie enduring doesn't really have any connection with like it's critical acclaim or it's it's. In fact, the fact that whether I like it or not. That's true. That's true. Like, but
1: I, if I don't like a film, I'm not going to nominate it. That's what I'm saying.
0: Okay. But, but I would say that if we're talking about in a movie enduring, a movie enduring is not dependent on me thinking it's good or liking it. Okay, that's fine. We're two separate people nominating our okay, own two cool. separate lists. <laughs> this is this is why we talk it out. All right.
1: I love it. I also okay, think okay. that has a film aged well aesthetically is something that's important for me. That can either for sure mean that it's dated itself in a cool way, either as a period piece mm-hmm. or it's like really purely 1995 and that's what I like about it. That's like a quality I like about it. But it can also mean mm-hmm. that it's like an ambiguous time period. It can mean there's some special effects that still hold up. So mm-hmm. the, the aesthetic of the film aging well. Take that for what you, what it's worth. For um, sure, I can get behind that. Are the concepts of the film still relevant somehow today? That is something I consider that like can a, a 20-year-old in 2020 watching a film still glean as much relevance as you know, let's say the film came out in 1970 or something like that. That can help it score some some brownie points in my in my metric as well. Okay. Okay. And then I think we I think we'll agree on this, but is is the film widely seen? Sure, of
0: course. Whether that course.
1: be when it was originally released or uh through like a cult status. But a super obscure Taiwanese film that the majority of film goers have never heard of, I don't think deserves a spot in this top five. There's other categories we can put that film into, but not in yep. the top five.
0: I I, I I agree.
1: Does it remain in conversation? Do people still bring this film up, whether it's to laud it, even to make fun of it, but is it somehow still in the conversation? Mm-hmm. And then one I've been thinking about a lot, but the film have a rewatchability quality to it. And I'll also say, so I just laid out whatever, half dozen criteria for what we're trying to do here. But I think that if a film scores low on a few of these categories, but it really exceeds in one or, or two other points, it can still make its way into the top five. Okay. okay. So this is what I'm going by, and I'm I'm springing this on you. So if you want to, <laughs> you know, lay down your
0: well thought process, yeah. you're welcome I'll, to do
1: that. And we can do. We can get into it more as we keep going here.
0: So so for this particular episode, what really, by and large, was the leading criteria for me was is it still in the conversation? And I can adapt that to certainly like does the movie hold up? Is it has it has it only gained? credibility as the years have gone on but i i I liked leading with has the movie endured because i feel like that's kind of what's fun kind of about what we're trying to do here is because it's separating that foggy it feels like with oscars what the oscars epitomize is sort of the objectivity of measuring great films and it's just through osmosis just rigorously being drilled into us is that A, prestige equals good, generally speaking. High production value equals good. Like there's just these little things that we just inherently as people, as audiences start to associate with good movies. And that's a very different thing. To me, Home Alone is a a prime example of it where it's like, that's a movie that's not awarded or considered an Oscar movie yet I would argue and I don't think I would it would be much of a hot take to argue that Home Alone was the maybe the best movie of 1990 or the year it came out like and so that's what that to me is is does the movie endure and why does it endure And is it still in the conversation to me is kind of the biggest criteria because that's the difference between what the Oscars were awarded, what was box office awarded wise at the time and what's what movies we remember and still talk about today.
1: All right. Well, I think, you know, we're trying to do a pretty abstract thing here. So totally. Absolutely. Let's keep chipping our way through this conundrum we have. What I'm saying is that those bullet points I laid out, you can weight each criteria differently each episode that's fine. You just need to be able to justify for sure. it. For sure. For right. sure. For
0: sure. I love Let's it. Let's get into okay, it. Okay. So yeah. So what is your number five? I think my number five is the Fountain. Is this on your list? Okay. It is not. And I will say, I I tried watching this movie for the podcast. I I, I will admit I wasn't quite in the right frame of mind. I watched a half hour of it and 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 checked out. Go ahead. Okay. I think that this is a film with a with a little bit
1: of staying power. This is a genre I like a lot, which is like the contemplative Mm sci-fi, right? Mm -hmm. And this film is, it's early on in Darren Aronofsky's career. It's an intense meditation on, I would say love and mortality or love and immortality. It was originally set up to be a blockbuster starring Brad Pitt and eventually Brad Pitt dropped out. I think, I think, all in all, that was a good thing for the film because it got way scaled down in its scope and out came mm. like a a bit of an indie sci-fi intellectual film on the other end. I think it's aged nicely. One, one thing that's aged nicely, and this is something that I feel really strongly about, and I, I think if I haven't already mentioned it at some point in the podcast, it's something that I will keep bringing up, and that is that when special effects are practical and not made in a computer, it gives the film a much better chance of standing up over time. And just to to throw some examples out there, I'll throw out Space Odyssey, Blade Runner, The Fountain, The Matrix, Inception. These are films that have special effects, that they have surreal things happening inside of them, but those things were shot on camera and not just... Assembled and composited in a computer, and and that that just gives it a tangible factor. And this film is really beautiful, I think. And and this film falls in that category where it's shot with miniatures, it's shot with models, it's shot with like micro photography. I think where you're like shooting with a long lens, like these tiny microscopic things that look cosmic when they're blown up on a big screen. So I like sci-fi films that ask more questions than they answer, and I think this film does it. And I, I think that this film has really beautiful visuals that go with it. And for those two reasons, I'm gonna put it on my top five. And I also understand why you turned it off after 30 minutes. It's a bit of a slog. Word. And I think the first time I watched it, I fell asleep.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, and and granted, I mean, my hands are tied in the fact that I haven't seen. I've only seen a half hour of the movie, so that's not doing that movie justice. So I'll refrain from critiquing that. Okay. What's your number five? Okay, so at number five, I have Children of Men. Ooh. Okay, that's a pretty hot take.
1: I'm Uh going to stop you right there, and let's just uh, Uh save the conversation about Children of Men
0: for a little bit later on our on our list. Okay. okay? So why don't you go to your number four right now, and I'll follow up. I have a feeling that's. Okay, I have a feeling it's going to be the same situation. At number four, I have The Departed. Okay, so The Departed is my number two. Okay, fair. All right,
1: and why, so it's not, I don't think it's a hot take that that The Departed is on your top five, but why is it only Mm -hmm. number four?
0: Again, if this was like my personal list, Departed is number two as well like in terms of my personal favorite films from 2006 departed is number 2 i it's to me it's number 4 on this list just because it's very much in the conversation it's a part of the zeitgeist it's referenced it's the it's a it's a great film and and it's just part of the cultural fabric i would just say that there are three films from 2006 that i would argue are uh, bigger pieces of the cultural fabric. When is the last time um, you saw The Departed? A, like a year ago. Okay. And I've seen it many, many times. How about you?
1: Yeah, so I'd seen it many times and I almost wasn't going to watch it again in preparation for this episode. Mm-hmm. And at some point I sat down and thought like, okay, I'm gonna watch like half an hour of The Departed just to like, you know, catch the vibe again. And <laughs> yeah. I watched the entire thing. And of the movie is of like, it's a roller coaster. It's a, it's a, it's a weird and flawed film. In a lot of ways, I feel like Mm -hmm. Scorsese is like, you know, he still has all of his powers, but he's getting a bit weird in his decisions. But I think that contributes to the film. Like the camera movements are weird. The music is really weird. There's this one scene when he like starts Gimme Shelter for the second time in the film and Mm -hmm. then fades it out. And then in the same scene starts it at the beginning again. Yeah, there's some weird qualities of the film, but ultimately I feel like they lend themselves well to making a nice movie. The star powers through the roof. You know, we're big fans of Leo on this podcast. If you haven't been able to of course. tell that yet, who isn't? Who isn't? There's tons of rewatchable scenes. The, the rewatchability of this film oh my is God. high. Dude, it flies by. Dude, it,
0: yes. It, this is this. I mean, to your point, it's like yeah. When you said you were gonna watch a half hour of this movie, I know what you're saying because it's like the movie is what like I think it's over two and a half hours, and it goes by in a snap every time. And it's just like the structure of the movie is so insane. The credits. And Scorsese does this like multiple times. He did it for Hugo as well, where it's like the the, the title of the movie doesn't appear until it feels like you're like well into the movie. That, you know? that has aged the best. That is awesome. because oh, I love you it. Feel, I love it, man.
1: You feel like you're <laughs> so deep into the movie that you're not even thinking <laughs> yes. that you're at the beginning anymore. And then Leo yeah. is like in prison doing pull-ups or something. Yeah. And it's like... Yes, it just blasts the dropkick Murphys like way too loud, yeah. and says like the Departed, and you're like, "Holy shit!
0: Holy I have to shit. buckle up yep. because yes. we're just getting going here." Yes, dude. It's and it's like I can't, I don't. Other than Hugo, and I haven't seen all of Scorsese's like recent stuff, but but it's just like a movie I, you don't see employed all that much, and it's just just wonderful. Like seeing it here, where it's just like it is. It's like it's it's basically it's setting the tone of like just prep yourself because like this is like this movie knows what it's doing and you don't know what you're in. Yeah. This is just the tip of the iceberg 12 times. Yes, exactly. So, and like, and and to your point of like just the weird stuff that's happening, it's like, I don't have the knowledge of craft nearly that you do, but just like watching it as a viewer and watching it multiple times, it's like the editing of the movie is he, it feels sloppy in an intentional way. There's like, like this, like kind of gross pan into Martin Sheen, like kind of, it it, you know, in, in his last scene in the movie, where it pans in and there's a like the sound dolly of like a do, sorry a dolly into martin sheen and there's just the sound of glass breaking and there's nothing there's just no glass that's been broken it's just kind of this like and it's like you saying this stuff about the music that stuff i haven't like noticed but it makes complete sense in the movie dropkick murphy's comes back blasting too loud like when when they're all going to meet up at like the construction site yeah. like it's it's like it's just fucking crazy it's like man that's a good point and it's like you know it's it's all intentional like it's like he knows exactly what he's doing of course he does but the fact that it comes across is like yeah we're just gonna like cut hack this up and it's gonna be kind of raw and feel feel like um just like loose and and impulsive is like the fact that you know that it's all hyper intentional is just all it's just yeah it's just tricky. so
1: yeah oh, i mean yeah. The, i think it's you you hit the nail on the head when you said it almost feels sloppy at some points but the whole thing yeah clicks
0: oh totally tremendously yeah so
1: yeah it's a really it's a really fun movie and i have it up on my number two you know like i said there are flaws to this film which we don't need to get into necessarily right now but i have it up uh high on my list because uh, the the, like i said before the rewatchability is 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 so high on it and this we should we should say this one best picture was just about to say
0: it's it's yeah so this is a movie that I feel like maybe is the closest to Titanic in terms of it's like how much it was loved by general audiences and the accolades that it received. It's not on the top 10 worldwide gross, but I it made a ton of money. Yeah. Where it where it's just like, it feels like very rare territory where it's a pop movie that is rewarded equally by the, by the prestigious
1: awards. All right.
0: Number four. So yeah, my you?
1: number four is little miss sunshine. Yeah. Fun. Love it. it. Why? Is this on your list or no? It's not on my list. It's a movie that I love. Okay. I, I don't have a lot to say about this film. I know that you like films with heart. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes more than I do. You, you, you attach more weight to yeah. that than I do. But sure. this one, sure. this film is chock full of heart. And I love it because it's not sentimental. And it just makes you smile, basically. It's like a yeah. bizarre, non-sentimental, feel-good family drama. And yeah, it's really nice that I, I, again, I don't have much
0: to say about it. It's full of heart and I, and I love it for not being overly
1: sentimental. I'll leave it at that.
0: Yeah. Worth noting it. it Michael Arndt, the screenwriter won best original screenplay for this. Alan uh, Arkin won best supporting actor, best supporting actor. And that was a huge upset because Eddie Murphy was kind of the front runner and famously Eddie Murphy left after it was awarded to, Ooh, I didn't know that ceremony. good gossip. Yeah. Yeah. What's your number three? My number three, and okay, I'm ready for the blowback here for multiple reasons, but my number three for movies from 2006 that are part of the cultural fabric are The Devil Wears Prada. This is a movie that, okay, so truth be told, I've never seen this movie, okay? But Max's facial expression right now, ladies and gentlemen, is... (laughs) So so it's not fair that I haven't seen the movie, but based on the criteria of it being part of the cultural fabric, I have heard specifically Meryl Streep's Character in *Devil Wears Prada* and Emily Blunt's character in *Devil Wears Prada* referenced only more frequently as the years have gone on. If people are angry at this, I understand that. Separately, it's a separate issue that I haven't seen the movie. That that's fucked up. I will agree. That's a pretty big but issue.
1: Yeah, I would I would agree. It's yeah. a big
0: issue, but but <laughs> removing that issue, uh, the me saying and positing that the *Devil Wears Prada* is. Has become only an an increasing cornerstone of popular culture since its release. I think is very, very, very debatable. Um, have you seen the movie? I have. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not in my top five, but what, <laughs> but, but, but do you, do you, are you with me in the, the amount that you hear it in the conversation? Yeah, I,
1: I, I think you can make a justifiable argument that based on the not set in stone criteria, we talked about that it is, it mm-hmm. is widely seen and it is still in the conversation. I'm sure to a certain crowd, it has a very high rewatchability aspect to it.
0: Mm-hmm. I'd borderline like to do a deep dive on this. Yeah, you'd have to watch it again. To do it's a deep a movie. dive, probably. No, <laughs> uh, Meryl Streep was nominated for best actress because, of course, she was. But yeah, I've just been amazed. I, yeah, it's just like it's a, it's a, it's a blind spot for me. So it could have been in that category as well. Yeah, to me, it's a, again. I, I've said my piece. All right, I'm not, I'm All not right. mad at you. You're, you're pushing the concept definitely.
1: But uh, uh, yeah, I'll. I'll accepted at your number 3. Fantastic. Uh what do you got for number 3, Max? Uh my number 3 is going to be Babel. I'm guessing okay. this is not on okay. your list at all. It's not. It's a movie I really like. Okay. Though. So, Babel. It's a it's a it's a tough one for me. I feel like this is the culmination of Inuritu, and uh I want to say the screenwriter's name is Guillermo Ariega? Uh yep, Guillermo Arriaga. Okay, Guillermo Arriaga. Um they made 3 films together. This is the third film. The Proceeding to our Amores Peros and 21 Grams. This is not my favorite of those three films. However, I feel like it has it's it's probably some of the strongest filmmaking of those three, and that's gonna give it some strong marks. You know, all three of these films deal with a similar theme, which is like the interconnectivity of us. And this one really pushes it even further where it's like a global story that takes place in just over the border in Mexico, Tokyo, and Morocco, and I feel like that's an the, the concept behind this film is important. The filmmaking really strong. It has like a the, the scene where the hard of hearing Japanese girl is has just taken ecstasy and is in the club is like that that can be a nominee
0: for the best scene of the year. Uh, it can Absolutely. be a nominee I, for I, one yeah. of the best
1: edited scenes of all time
0: yep I, I was gonna say as you were saying this i was i wanted to reference that scene because that that moment and that's one of the reasons that uh, september by earth wind and fire is like always on playlists of mine is because of that sequence definitely
1: but w- with all that said it it doesn't have a very uh high rewatchability for me and that's mostly because it's a it's a tough watch it is sort of gratuitously tragic in a lot of ways and from the yeah. first scene when the two moroccan berber boys are given a rifle until the end of the film it's it's people with a lot of humanity in terrible situations and so that's why i had a hard time sort of placing this one
0: yeah yeah i agree with you on the rewatchability for sure it's a movie that i've seen multiple times it doesn't crack my list it's definitely has you know previously mentioned moments that i that have always stuck with me and that i hold in very very high regard but as a as a whole it's it's not a not an easy rewatch and
1: so yeah again this might be repetitive but i feel like it's sort of the culmination of this this writer director team and this concept that they were really into. And I'm also glad after this culmination that they parted ways because Iñárritu has gone on to make tons of great films, including, I think he made Beautiful after this, Birdman, The Revenant, and he's won Best Director a few times. And so I think this was an apt farewell to that writing directing team and to the the, the concepts that were really driving them. Well put. Well put. So what are we on? Your number two or your number
0: three? My number okay. two. Okay. What is your number and, two? And this is just going to set the world ablaze. So my number two from 2006 is Cars. Okay. And this is not a movie that I. It's I would put it as one of one of my least favorite Pixar's, and 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 I think it's generally considered that by Pixar fandom, um, and I think rightfully so. It's a it's a fine movie. It's certainly the best of the Cars movies, but this movie is referenced so many times still. And and again, like, it's just like, it's so in the conversation, usually as the butt of jokes, usually revolving around like, what's the physiology of like a living car? It's like an absurd, crazy concept. It's like really like, I mean, Pixar does it the best that they can, but like it's it's the most popular like Pixar movie with like kids. I think it's the one like, like it's the first Pixar movie they like can watch and understand and like, like is because it's just, like, talking vehicles. So it's, like, I feel like it's, like, as a kid movie and a parent movie, parents become very familiar with it. And I know this because I work in schools. I have a very young nephew and niece. Like, Cars are... The, the movie Cars and Lightning McQueen and Mater are, like, everywhere. And I'm saying this as, like, yes, I, it's, like, my one of my least favorite Pixar's, but, like, I'll be damned if it's, like, what does it say that it's, like, all the more in the conversation then. Other than Toy Story, I feel like this this is maybe the most like merchandise and most popular Pixar movie with with kids. I mean, this is up there with like Frozen in terms of its popularity. Still, um, it's everywhere. Well, I've
1: never seen this, and that's fine. And yeah, I mean, what does this say about the year of two thousand six in film that your favorite Pixar movie? Ratatouille was your number three in 2007, and your least favorite Pixar movie, Cars, is your number two in 2006.
0: I will, I will be the first to admit that I, my criteria is changing. Okay, it's ever-evolving. For, for these lists. Ever-evolving, we're figuring it out.
1: Uh, fair enough, I, um, I have a different uh, perception of this film. It's not something I, that that really is in my face at
0: all these days. Sure, sure, sure. And that, and that's, that's fair. I just like, yeah, even outside of like, even in like kind of the comedy world, I feel like I, Cars is like an easy joke. It's like constantly referenced. Um, it's around, it's around, it's endured. All right. My, uh, my number two is Departed. As I mentioned before, what is your number one? So my number one is Borat. Okay. Um, Borat to me from the moment it released was a sensation, uh like soaked up uh catchphrases the character was everywhere on late night television and interviews on YouTube uh it was like an explosion it was like uh, nothing now it's you know now Borat is certainly like with the sequel that had just been released there's a bit of a renaissance with it but like I mean my wife and Nat like all that like it got just drilled into the point of like this sucks. But like the movie itself was truly a phenomenon. I mean, you you remember this when this dropped. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was insane. And it's a very the rare category of a comedy that got recognition at the Oscars. It was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. And there's certainly an argument to be made that that Sacha Baron Cohen could have been nominated for for actor. I mean, like to me, it's like just from a comedy standpoint, it's like it's hard to say anything that hasn't been said about the movie, but I think the main thing is, is because it's people have become so jaded to it, as with any hyper popular movie, just with the catchphrases and like it just gets drowned in kind of the cynicism and whatever. But I, like the movie itself and the moment it came out, it was truly electric. It was just like what I've never seen anything like this before, and I rewatched it like two months ago, and it it holds up. I mean, like really, like it it strikes this. It, it's just arresting because it's like, this is, this should be offensive. This very, I totally understand why someone would be offended by this. Like there's a, there's a a shot in the movie that like really stands out to me that I never picked up on when I watched it, watching it this time was that there's just, there's a, there's a shot in it where it's in a montage or something. And he's in driving the ice cream truck with his manager and he's in real traffic and he just turns the, the, the ice cream truck into oncoming traffic that's like trying to get out. And it was like that, like the chaos of that and the anarchy of that. And just like the, to me, like encapsulated everything about the character in the movie and what it is, is just like, here is a complete alien to our culture. Just diving in and like and just throwing himself in there and just seeing how people react and revealing things about the culture in doing that. And also just being just plain offensive and funny. It, 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 it's just like a, a movie who who it still has so much to it that that hasn't been truly understood, I think, or unpacked fully. It's just it, it's yeah, it's just a really a, a, a moment. Yeah, I mean, I I I toyed with having this in my top
1: 5. I ultimately didn't have it in there because I it was a sensation when it came out, and when I walked out of the movie theater, I was like, that might be the funniest movie I've ever seen in my life.
0: For sure. And I yeah. do think
1: Sasha Baron Cohen is pretty much a genius. Right. With that said, it like it, it lacks like a rewatchability for me because it's so based on the shock factor the first time you see mm-hmm. it. And like ultimately I do feel like it faded away over the years.
0: I, I, I can agree with that. Absolutely not in
1: 2007, 2008, 2009, but somehow Mm-mm. with thir- 14 years of hindsight, it it, it it sort of faded off and I, to the point where I, you know, I didn't concretely remember that Borat came out this year and I only remembered it when I was, you know, researching the films of 2006.
0: That's fair. That's fair. And, and I can concede to that. My main, the, the thing that kind of kept it at number one for me was my wife I still here and granted that's a crumb of a legacy but to, but to me that was like the sign that like man this like lodged itself kind of permanently into into the culture all right but I but I but I hear you um, okay so I think I know yeah what, I, what you I, I guess I show uh, I've shown
1: my hand already with my number one that is children mm-hmm. of men and oh yeah I think we both agree that this is an amazing film For sure, and the best of the year. I will point out that I was shocked after doing some research that it was not commercially successful. It lost money, which seems mind-boggling at this point. Oh, really? I didn't know it lost money. Damn. So I'll just kind of run through the reasons why I really like this film. The world building is really great because it is is sci-fi. It's dystopian. It's in the future, but it feels really nuanced and close at the same time. Yep. We are recording this podcast in the middle of a pandemic that is not going away and is currently on fire in our home country of America right now. And somehow that lends its, it it gives it the film some relevance too, not directly but just in sort of this uh, grim, hopeless is this really happening feeling that the film projects? And then between the pandemic, the the fervor that surrounds, you know, in both politics and the media that surrounds terrorism, immigration, mm-hmm. the European migrant crisis of a few years ago, which is still going on, Brexit, it, it yeah. all, it, it checks a lot of boxes of, yeah, this is sci-fi, this is dystopian, and thank God that we don't have a worldwide fertility issue right now, but My
0: God. this is, um, yeah,
1: it, it's, it's prescient. Somehow, right?
0: Absolutely. I So I rewatched this last night and I've seen it many times. And yeah, I mean, it's just every time you rewatch it, like with any great movie, you just pick up on new stuff. And my roommate and I were talking about how if the pandemic affected babies instead of old people, how differently the pandemic would be handled Anyway, it, pandemic or not, it's a movie that there's always something to be found in it because it just feels like it's dealing with just human issues, and you can just see like uh, if like one or two things tip societally, I can see us getting here pretty quickly. I feel like it's only it, the 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 visceralness of it has only remained as the years have gone by since its release I, and it's just beautiful i mean i'm a huge corona fan and this movie feels like is this is the film that like got me into corona of like oh i i that prisoner prisoner of azkaban guy is like really good let me rewatch watch yeah. that but just like yeah just like kind of to your point of like it's it's a huge world building movie and they do it so organically so elegantly there's no voiceover in it. It's all told peripherally through like what you're seeing in the background and like newspapers and news segments on TV, but it's all blended together in this way that's like totally organic, totally believable, and like you said, it feels like urgent and scary and very believable.
1: Yeah. What uh, a big year for Clive Owen, who was in this, and he was also in Inside Man, which I couldn't really yeah. find a place to drop it into this podcast. But I rewatched that recently. That's a a nice Spike Lee the popcorn flick definitely
0: I do need to rewatch it I didn't see it since it came out but I remember yeah that movie was hugely successful at the yep. time and I remember just like loving it like it was just like it was great so but yeah kind of a weird I feel like uh, I haven't seen Clive Owen very much in the last 14 years I, I was I I I had the same thought watching Children of Men last night he's like so he's great he's great I know there was like rumors that he was supposed to be Bond when Daniel Craig got it but even that aside yeah, I just feel like it's surprising that we're not se- haven't seen more of Clive Owen in the past decade.
1: As far as the criteria, the ever-evolving criteria I've been talking about, this film checks it mm-hmm. all. It's good. It is aesthetically really nicely done in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. The concepts are very relevant in in mm-hmm. 2020. Uh, it's widely mm-hmm. seen and widely talked about, and it has a mm-hmm. high rewatchability. Even though it is a pretty grim film, it's it's a nice film to yep. watch, and I I've seen it several times yeah with with the, all of that considered it, it it pushed itself to my clear number one of 2006
0: yeah I mean that's 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 justified I uh I think this will be remembered as the episode where Nick and Max had widely different criteria but that's okay we're learning all right, that just about does us for the year in 2006. Thank you all so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor, hit the subscribe button on your podcast player, and if you have a moment and enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you left us a good review. It really helps us, and we sincerely appreciate it. Um, we'd love to hear from you. If you agree with us, disagree with us, or have your own hot takes, send us an email or voice memo to went 2 at gmail.com.
1: You know, and while we're talking about listener feedback, mm-hmm. We actually have a little bit of listener feedback from our 2007 yes, episodes. Do. do you want to yeah, kick love us to. off? So
0: uh, Phil Meister wrote in, thank you for listening. Phil, he thinks that Jonah Hill should have been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor for Superbad. And I thought that was a really good point, and I would agree. And I think it kind of represents the uh, prejudice that Oscars famously have for towards comedy. I, I feel like similar to to Sasha Baron Cohen in... In Borat, it, it's, it's a performance that was one of the best of the year, but just because it was comedic, the Oscars didn't recognize it or didn't know what to do with it. So, Phil, great point. Thank you for writing in and thank you for listening. Uh, anything Agreed. else, Max?
1: Okay, I'll read, a, uh, I'll read an email that we got from a uh, very perceptive mm-hmm. listener from Europe. I just listened to your first episode of the Oscar went to and I enjoyed it. Your conversation is stimulating and enriching. And I found myself thinking all sorts of things on my moody pandemic November walk. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I would like to offer a thought I had on the topic of the aging film of an aging film like Juno. You, you're mentioning that some films while hitting the perfect nerve in a certain year, lose their punch in the years later. Others seem to effortlessly float through the decades, only getting better with time. I have an optimistic theory about this. It seems to me that films about a specific theme on which there have been societal and political progress since they came out are the ones that have a tougher time aging. While the films with a broader theme like power, love, family, money, betrayal, loss, etc. have an easier time traveling through the decades. When I first watched Juno, I was a 26 year old young woman. I remember it impressed me. Deeply to see a female character like Elliot Page portrays on screen. She was nothing I'd ever seen before cool, snappy, flawed, witty, emotional, but in a straightforward way. Juno was the opposite of a Disney princess, and to my innocent eyes, the first real multi dimensional portrayal of a teenage girl. I've watched the movie again recently, and I agree with you when you say that the dialogue has become annoying. What happened? Well, I think progress. The societal environment around me now as a 36-year-old has changed enough to take away the necessity of this movie, the pinch of it. The resistance has faded, and so does the punch. In the meantime, I've had a chance to watch and read about a whole bunch of counter-stereotypical, complicated, multidimensional female characters and feminism in a steady, strong current of my life. Against that mental backdrop, Juno has lost what has once made her seem so unique. Don't get me wrong, there is still room for way more progress in order to give women a fair reflection in the film world. But, to me, there has been progress, and re-watching Juno made it crystal cr- clear for me. So, while unfortunate for the movie, it makes me really hopeful about the world. I guess I'll take it, and I hope Diablo Cody feels the same way. If so, may many more comments on our society wow. fade with time.
0: That was insightful. That was beautiful, and such a such a great point in right? regards to movies being a comment on on current society, dating them, and the movies that have longevity being more archetype archetypical. That's really that's really great.
1: I think we sort of let in a less eloquent way touched on this as we noted that there was a lot of films in 2007 about right, unwanted right, right. pregnancies, and those have sort of lost some mm-hmm. punch as the abortion conversation isn't at the forefront it was 15 sure. years ago. And it, I think it also sort of clarifies something that we didn't point out, but why a film like There Will Be Blood uh, right. ages so well. Because like those themes are going to are going to live 100 years ago and, I don't know, 100 years in the future, right. but I can say 10 right. years into the future. And so that moves through the decades.
0: Yes, um, absolutely. Effortlessly. Absolutely. So I think this was also Junior a very nice is, point. It was timely and there will be blood is timeless in their, in their constructions. That was beautifully perceptive and so thoughtful. Thank you for, for writing that in.
1: Yeah. Yes. Thanks for all the comments. We hope yeah, to absolutely. we hope to hear some more. Bring in a new level, absolutely. new layer to the conversation.
0: Also, if you have a film you'd like us to talk about, do a deep dive on, shoot us an email and tell us why you love hate it, and we'll consider it for our next deep dive. Um, specifically, 2006. Uh, Max, do you have anything you want to add? I think that that pretty much does it. Cool. All right. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, and we'll talk to you. Soon. Thank you. See you next week.